Well, thank you for checking out the podcast. I'm your host, Randy Duncan, and we're continuing to make our way through the book of Genesis, verse by verse. In the last episode, we covered chapter 13, discussing the separation of Abraham and his nephew Lot. We mentioned that Abraham gives Lot his choice of land to take, and Lot chooses for himself all the Jordan Valley and sets up camp as far as the city of Sodom. We also touched on why Lot may have selected to move all the way to Sodom, knowing that the people who lived there were wicked and were great sinners in the sight of God. Which brings us now to chapter 14. Now chapter 14 is a bit different. We'll see that the story here has a couple of unique features. It contains the first biblical record of warfare. It projects Abraham as a a military leader and a hero and tells us that Abraham is given the epithet or the description of the Hebrew. So to set the stage for this chapter, remember that Lot greedily chose for himself the best land and also moved and set up camp in Sodom, which again, the Bible tells us was full of wicked men who were great sinners in the eyes of God. And now his choice is going to turn out to be disastrous as war breaks out and Sodom is attacked. And so this chapter is about Lot getting captured and then Abraham's rescue of Lot. But the story begins when four eastern kings suppress a revolt by five kings in the Dead Sea area. So we start this chapter out in the first nine verses with simply a list of kings in the area and introduce two armies that have gone to battle. So if you can bear with me while I simply read through the kings and the cities, we'll discuss what all this adds up to. And so we're going to take the first seven verses here. Verse 1 begins, In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Kedor Laomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim. These kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Birsha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, Shimaber, king of Zebuim, and the king of Bela, that is, Soer. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kedor Laomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedor Laomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Amim in Shaveh Kiriah, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran, on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to Aim, that is, Kadesh, and defeated all the countries of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazan Tamar. Now, I know that was a mouthful, but again, what we see here is that five kings in the area around the Dead Sea revolt against four kings in the east. Now, each of the cities has its own king, which is typical of a Canaanite city-state system that existed before the Israelite conquest. So the four kings of the east set out to presumably squash the revolt, and they raid and they conquer all of Transjordan and the south of Palestine along their way to reach the rebel kings. And their route of conquest moves from north to south along what is known as the King's Highway, which is the major north-south artery in Transjordan. Did you notice that in verse 3, it says, And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is, the, quote, Salt Sea. 
Now the salt sea is the Dead Sea. The Hebrew name for the Dead Sea means salt sea. And the reason is because its average salt content is about 32%, which is about 10 times saltier than the average 3% salinity of the oceans. And verse 4 tells us that 12 years they had served Kador Laomer, but in the 13th year they rebelled. And when it says that they, quote, served him, it most likely means that they paid him tribute or whatever he may have demanded. Kador Laomer was the leader of this eastern confederacy, and so when the other kings rebelled, it's likely that they refused to pay him the annual tribute. Okay, two more verses about the kings and the cities, and then we'll move on. So verse 8 and 9 say, Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim, with Kador Laomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Okay, so what does that mean? And what exactly is going on here? This is simply telling us that the four kings who were mentioned went out to battle against the five kings that have also been named. Four against five. For the first time in the Bible, tribes and nations are now recorded as going to war with one another. And it doesn't necessarily mean that this was the first war, just that this is the first one recorded or perhaps the most significant one to date. But either way, the primary reason it's recorded is because Abraham is about to get involved. Verses 10 through 12 read, Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all their provisions, and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abraham's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. This is what brings Abraham into the story. But first, it says that the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, or tar pits. Now, tar pits are common in this area of the Dead Sea. In fact, they're so common that large amounts actually bubble up and even float on the Dead Sea. But this Hebrew word for pits is the same word used throughout the Old Testament for wells of water, and so it usually refers to a spot that has been dug out. And it says that as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, they fell into them, into these pits. Now first off, it appears that the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah were fleeing the battle. I mean, they were trying to escape, so the battle must not have been going very well for their side. Secondly, the Hebrew expression used here for they fell into them can also mean that they threw themselves into them. So there are a couple of different interpretations of exactly what is being communicated here. The first interpretation is that as the troops fled, they fell into the tar pits. So if you take the phrase to be saying they fell, this is the interpretation you're most likely to go with. But another interpretation is that as the kings fled, they threw themselves into the pits and used them as hiding places. So these pits sort of provided a place of refuge for the kings. As I said, either way, things are not going well on the battlefront for the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, regardless of which way you interpret this phrase. 
Because as we see in verse 11, the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions. But verse 12 is the key verse here because it tells us that not only did the enemy take the possessions and provisions out of Sodom and Gomorrah, they also took Lot, who was living in Sodom. Remember in the last episode, Lot foolishly chose to live in Sodom. And you can see sort of an interesting progression in Lot's identifying with Sodom. First, he chose it. He chose the land after Abraham gave him the first pick. Second, he chose to camp near Sodom, even though he was aware that the men of the city were wicked and sinners in God's sight. Third, he ends up living in Sodom, becoming an active citizen. You see the progression here. And then finally, if you skip ahead to chapter 19, you'll see that Lot is a respected citizen of Sodom and called the wicked men of Sodom brothers. Psalm 1 verses 1 and 2 tells us to not be like Lot, to not choose like Lot did. Psalm 1 verses 1 and 2 tell us, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand alongside the manner or the ways or habits of sinners is what it's telling us. Well now, those decisions are going to come back and haunt Lot, as he is taken away captive by the enemy. And here is where it begins to get really interesting. Verses 13 and 14. Then one who had escaped came and told Abraham the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshkol and Aner. These were allies of Abraham. When Abraham heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. So someone escapes, goes and finds Abraham, and tells him what has happened that Lot's been taken captive. Notice how verse 13 describes Abraham. Abraham the Hebrew. That's the first mention of a Hebrew. We're not even certain of the origin or meaning of the term Hebrew. There are two or three primary thoughts out there. Some think it's a, a geographic term, which derives from the Hebrew root word for to pass over, and so it means one from beyond. Others believe it's more of a social term designating a, a sort of a landless people from many different ethnic backgrounds. But another thought, and the one that seems to be preferred by the majority of commentators, is that Hebrew is an ethnic term that's connected to Eber, the grandson of Noah, and the last ancestor in the line of Shem before the earth was divided, as it's described in Genesis 10. So when Abraham hears that Lot has been taken captive, he gathers the trained men of his household, 318 of them, and takes off to rescue Lot. Now these men were born in his household, meaning they were slaves born of slaves, or more accurately, bondservants. And they would have been Abraham's most loyal and reliable servants. So a couple of things here. First, notice that Abraham doesn't say, well, that serves Lot right for moving to Sodom in the first place. He's getting what he deserves from that poor decision. No. Abraham hears the news and immediately gathers and leads his men. Second, notice how many trained men Abraham had in his household. 318. 
Now, 318 is an unusually specific and precise number, which is why many commentators believe that this number is a literal number. Now, there are a couple of extra biblical sources that utilize that same number 318, uh, such as the Iliad, and there's an Egyptian source, but the 318 doesn't conform to any other symbolic or representative number anywhere else in Scripture. The other thing to note about this 318 number is that it represents a sizable army for that period of time. And so it's a clear indication of Abraham's wealth. When we get to verse 24, we learn also that Abraham had allies. So in addition to his 318 men, his actual number of men was probably larger, more than just his 318 men. But keep in mind, the invading armies were likely much larger because it's a coalition of territories, not just the fighting men of a city-state. It says that Abraham went in pursuit as far as Dan, and Dan would be the extreme northern end of the land of Israel. Verses 15 and 16, And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Habah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So Abraham attacks. But the first thing he did was to divide his men. Now the Hebrew term used here for divided against them is halak, which means to divide or to separate, which is most likely a military term. So what it sounds like happened is that Abraham attacks at night and he divides his forces and attacks from two sides. Now the JPS, which is the Jewish Publication Society, in their commentary on this, explained that the large armies of the coalition of kings had just completed a long and exhausting campaign. They didn't expect to have to fight again, and so they were unprepared for an attack, especially after they had encamped for the night. Armies didn't typically march after sunset in the ancient world. And so Abraham comes with his fresh troops, divides them up, and attacks this battle-weary army at night from two sides. And verse 15 says that Abraham, quote, defeated them. Now some translations use the word routed, but the word is also used to smite or to slay, to kill, to slaughter. So needless to say, whichever translation is utilized, we see that Abraham was victorious. And he rescues Lot and brings back all of the possessions and all of the people. Verses 17 through 20. After his return from the defeat of Kadur Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shiva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. So Abraham returns from his victory over the coalition of the kings. And as he returns, the king of Sodom comes out to meet him. But the Hebrew word used here for meet is a little ambiguous. It's sort of a neutral phrase. And so its meaning is derived from the context in which it's used. It may mean to greet or it may mean to confront. There's a big difference between these two. And here, we're also introduced to Melchizedek. Melchizedek is the king of Salem. And although it's not a certainty, 
Salem is most likely Jerusalem. And some will point to Psalm 76.2 as another reference to this being the case. Psalm 76.2 reads, In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. His abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. And just so you're aware, Zion is used as a synonym for Jerusalem as well as Israel as a whole. And Judah is a reference to the southern part of Israel. And so there's really good evidence that Salem is Jerusalem. Now, nothing much is known of Melchizedek except that he is a priest king and he sort of just emerges on the scene here and then he's gone. But we do know that he was a a monotheist, meaning he believed in one God, the God Most High. So Melchizedek is actually a monotheist in a land where there was otherwise a move towards universal paganism. And isn't it interesting what Melchizedek brings out? Bread and wine. Does that ring a bell? Melchizedek, a priest and a king in Jerusalem who believes in one God, the Most High God, who brings out bread and wine. And in case you think I'm going out on a limb here with Melchizedek and making that reference, Hebrews in the, in the New Testament, Hebrews 5, 5 and 6 read, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's very interesting. Also, Hebrews 5 verses 9 and 10 tell us, Speaking of Jesus and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And I'll give you one more in Hebrews 7, verses 1 through 3. This says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So Melchizedek is a very interesting figure in the Old Testament. And speaking of bread and wine, listen to Matthew 26, 26-29. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread blessed and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom." So the references to Melchizedek and Jesus are indeed interesting. Both priests and kings in Jerusalem, of the one true God, both with the bread and wine, which are the elements of the Lord's Supper. And so this appearance of Melchizedek is simply a foreshadowing of sorts of the New Testament and Jesus Christ. Now back to a word about the king of Sodom. In verse 21 says, And the king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. That's interesting. The king of Sodom 
unlike Melchizedek, brings no gift. He offers no blessings. The king of Sodom has been the beneficiary of Abraham's heroics here, and does he express any gratitude? No. But remember, Scripture told us that the men of Sodom were wicked and great sinners in the eyes of God, and the king of Sodom's actions here sort of provide a glimpse into that attitude of the people of Sodom. And notice also the first words of the king of Sodom, give me the persons. His first two words are, give me. What are his next words? Take the good for yourself. Take. The king of Sodom comes out and starts issuing instructions, give me, take. We start to see more clearly the attitude of the king of Sodom. The king addresses Abraham with commands rather than with honor and thanksgiving and appreciation. And what the king of Sodom wants Abraham to do is to give him back the people, but take all of the bounty, take all of the loot for himself. And he doesn't argue or contest the fact that Abraham has a right to keep the spoils of war. So how does Abraham respond? Verses 22 through 24 tell us. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abraham rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre take their share. So Abraham tells the king of Sodom that he has, quote, lifted up his hand to the Lord, which is a way of saying that he has sworn an oath. And we actually still do this today, for example, when, when we're sworn in somewhere or before we take the witness stand in court. And Abraham says he has sworn an oath to God that he will not take anything, no loot, no booty or spoils of war from this military campaign. Why? Because, as Abraham says in verse 23, lest you, the king of Sodom, should say, I have made Abraham rich. Abraham didn't want it to appear that he had acted out of, of any sort of mercenary considerations. He didn't want to be stained with the moral implications of keeping a victim's plunder, especially considering who was involved here. He doesn't want any part of what this pagan king of Sodom begrudgingly offers him. He wants a clear, moral claim to all of his possessions. Abraham understands that it was God who provided him the victory, and he is not going to allow anyone to undermine or tarnish the name of God and be able to say that it was them who had made Abraham rich. So Abraham says he will take nothing except what the troops have needed for food and the share of the men who went with him. This also reveals the fairness of Abraham who, although he takes nothing for himself, he allows the man who went with him to take their rightful and fair share. This then concludes chapter 14. But a couple of observations in closing. First, note the difference in Abraham in this scene versus earlier when he went down to Egypt. When he went to Egypt, remember, he was afraid that he would likely be killed by the Egyptians on the account of Sarah. So much so, that he had her lie to the Egyptians. But here, Abraham displayed no such fear. As soon as Abraham hears of Lot being captured, he assembles his men, he sets off to battle against superior forces. And afterwards, when returning victorious, he's confronted by the king of Sodom. Again, Abraham displays no fear, no reverence to the king. He doesn't bend to the will of the king. In fact, 
he tells the king he will do no such thing. Abraham honors the oath that he made to God, even after he was told by the king to take his spoils of war. You can see Abraham's mindset and trust in God changing from when he entered Egypt. This is something that we can all learn from. I mean, how are you currently situated in your relationship with God? How faithfully do you trust in God? And believe me, God will find a way almost every day to ask you, do you trust me? Are you maturing in your relationship with God as you learn to trust in him more and more and place your faith in him? Or are you kind of stuck where you've been for a long time now, sort of running in place? Remember, as in most things in life, you don't just stay the same day to day with anything that you do. Every day, you either get better or you get worse. And the same is true in your relationship with God. It either gets better or worse every day. And every decision you make will either bring you closer to God or distance you from God. So I hope you pause for a moment and consider how your relationship with God has trended lately. If it's not what you want it to be or, or wish it to be, consider spending more time in a focused, intentional effort to build that relationship. And just like Abraham, you don't worry about what other people might think. You don't worry about what the rest of the world is doing. You don't worry about what the king says. And I'll leave you this week with the words of God as he spoke to Joshua. God tells Joshua, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Don't be frightened and don't be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I thank you for listening and I hope you'll join me in the next episode where we'll take a look at God's covenant with Abraham. And until then, God bless.